Do you believe it? Do you live it? Do you really believe it? Is he just faithful right now? Or is he going to be faithful tomorrow too? Is he going to be faithful this weekend? Yes, he is faithful. But do we believe it in our hearts? Good morning again, saints. If you have your Bible, please open them to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, we will be looking at verses 1 through 7. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I'm in the process of learning about the life of the late Henry Newman. He was a Dutch priest, author, professor, theologian, and pastor who touched many lives through his books. You know, his writings and interests included uh, psychology, psychology, pastoral ministry, spirituality, social justice, and even um, community. He was even part of the second civil rights march on Selma in, in, in Montgomery on March 21, 1965. He was part of that march. And see, I'm intrigued by Newman because of his vulnerability and honesty about his own brokenness. And I love how he was able to express in his writings what people actually feel. Listen to these words. He once says, we are not what we do. We are not what we have. We are not what other people think of us. Coming home is claiming the truth. I am a child of a loving creator. We no longer have to beg for permission for the world to the world to exist. We no longer have to beg for permission from the world to exist. He also says, our life is full of brokenness, broken relationships, broken promises, broken expectations. How can we live with, with that brokenness without becoming bitter and resentful except by returning again and again to God's faithful presence in our lives? And finally, I said this quote last week. He says, long before we talk about original sin and original rejection, we should speak about God's original love. This series on the Imago Day embodies all those quotes I just read. We concluded the first set of sermons, set of sermons last Sunday. And the theme of those sermons were, is the Imago Day created? Each of those sermons are about God's original love for his entire creation. Love is put on display, full display, for six days. You see God loving the world. You see it. It's on full display when he prepares a good and and beautiful, life-sustaining planet for y'all. I hope you know that's love. The fact that the earth it's located, where it's located in our solar system is love. Because if we're closer to the sun, you're going to burn to death. If you're one planet away from the sun, you're going to freeze to death. That is either by accident or that is original love for y'all. Even before the fall. We are the crown of God's creation. You are. Humanity. Humanity is the Imago Dei. 
All people are created to be the representational image of God on earth. And the Imago Day is God's original love on display in, in, in 3D. And it's good. Very good. But there's a really big but. Because something is going to happen to in God's good creation. Something is, is going to sing shockwaves throughout all creation. You see, the inanimate and animated parts of God's creation will never be the same after what is getting ready to take place in Genesis 3. You see, the Imago Day is created in Genesis 1 and 2. And, and, and as we move to Genesis 3 and 4, we're going to see the Imago Day shattered. And I call this shattering the fall of the Imago Day. The fall of the Imago Day. And it begins in... In Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any of the trees in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it. At least you die. But the serpent said to her, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasing to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is God's holy and errant word. Please pray with and for me. Holy Spirit, again, we ask that you will continue to be in this service as you have been so far. I pray that you would take the, the preaching of the word and and apply it to my heart and apply it to the hearts of, of everyone that is here. You see us. You see our fears, our insecurities, our broken places. And I pray that you would minister to those places and remind us that, that Jesus is able. If he's able to deal with our sin on Calvary, he's able to deal with the current things that we struggle with. Help us to give him some credit. Help us in our unbelief. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 3 can be compared to a farmer who sows good seeds in his beautiful garden. But later his enemy comes and sows weeds among the wheat in order to create chaos. The fall of the Imago Dei is chaos. It's the shattering of the image of God in humanity. And, and it begins with an innocent, harmless encounter between an image bearer and a beast of the field. The fall starts with, with what seems to just be a casual conversation in the Garden of Eden. It starts with the introduction of, a, of an animated being the Lord God created with a specific set of skills and natural gifts. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, 
Don't bypass those introductory words. They're filled with so much truth that needs to be unpacked. First, the serpent is created by the Lord God on the sixth day of creation. I hope you know that. It's a natural creature of God. It's a natural part of his good creation. And one scholar says the serpent is not a mystical mystical monster that invades the garden, but a creature which belongs anywhere and everywhere in God's good creation. Second, the serpent is named by Adam in Genesis 2.20, which highlights humanity's stewardship over the animal kingdom. The verse says the, the man named all the livestock and to the birds and to the beasts of the field. He named them all, including the serpent. And third, the Lord God creates the serpent with a specific set of skills and qualities. It's described as being more crafty than any of the beasts of the field the Lord God had made. The serpent is created more crafty. He doesn't become more crafty. The serpent itself and even its craftiness are both good. But do you believe it? The Hebrew term that's translated crafty can, can, it can be used both positively and negatively. The term means to be clever, cunning, subtle, smart-witted, or perceptive. See, the serpent's craftiness is emphasized here because Satan is going to take control of the serpent and use its natural gifts negatively. Okay? Satan is going to use its natural gifts negatively. Such a scheme is beyond him. Theologian John Calvin says, Satan perverts for his own deceitful purposes the gift which has been divinely imparted to the serpent. That's an amen statement. Satan is planning to sow weeds in God's garden in order to bring ruin and chaos. And that's what he does because that's who he is. The message Bible says in in, in Revelation 12, 9, that the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the one called devil, Satan, the one who led the world astray. And Second Corinthians 11.14 says, For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He is subtle. He is clever in his schemes. In Genesis 1 and 2, in Genesis 1 and 2, God is, it records God speaking 16 times. Phrases like God said, God blessed, God named, God called, God command are both used. So what you may ask? Well, God's word is his bond. It's a reflection of his character. His word doesn't return to him empty. It always accomplishes the purpose for which he sent it. Your God isn't a shady politician who, who speaks out of both ends of his mouth. He's not a fictional character who uses words to, to just take your mind to some, some fantasy land. He's not a YouTuber who just says things to generate light, lights and followers. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie, or son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do? Or has he has spoken and will he not fulfill it? 
Every word your God speaks in Genesis 1 and 2 are true and real. Every word is received without question and without doubt. God says, and it's so. God speaks, and it's so. God blesses, and it's so. God commands, and it's so. God names, and it's so. But in Genesis 3, we see questions and and doubts sprout up like weeds in the garden. The trustworthiness of God's word is going to be put on the witness stand to be cross-examined. The authority of his word is challenged with a simple question. A question from a talking serpent. Yeah, you're right, a talking serpent. I know it sounds fishy. How can snakes talk? Sounds make-believe, I know. Sounds like a character from a fantasy novel or movie, I know. But but it's true. The talking serpent is real. Remember, it's under the supernatural control of the enemy. Please know that our faith as Christians is highly supernatural. Highly supernatural. And so like a smooth, clever, non-threatening operator, the, the enemy approaches Eve and, and he asks her a question, a, a question that sets in motion the fall of the Imago Day, a question that, that begins to, to shatter the image of God and humanity. He asks her, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree? In the garden. Notice the subtleness, the cleverness in the question. Notice the emphasis on the negative. Notice that the intent is, is to cast seed of doubt about God's goodness, his provision, his trustworthiness, his authority, and even his character. Notice that the question isn't addressed to Eve only. You know, the second person pronoun you in this verse is plural. Verses one through five, the you there is plural. So that means if the Satan was, the serpent was southern, the question would be, they got asked to say, y'all shouldn't eat of the tree in the garden. Adam is included in the question. He's part of the plural pronoun you. He's right there with her as he asked her the question. Did God actually say you and your husband shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that y'all's understanding of what God said to y'all? She responds to the serpent in verse two and three, verses two and three. Look with me. Eve says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Are those God's exact words to Adam? Is that what God tells Adam after he places him in the garden to, to keep it and, and to work it? In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the Lord commands Adam, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you do, you will surely die. The NIV Bible says you are free to eat of every tree in the garden. You see, Eve's response to the serpent omits surely and freely. TVC Saints, God's command to them is given in the context of liberty, not bondage. 
And that's a big difference. Context of liberty, not bondage. Remember, Adam and Eve are created to be responsible moral agents. They're not puppets and, and androids. They, they have the capacity to make choices. They, they have the capacity and the will to do what God tells Adam to do in Genesis 2. You may surely eat without a doubt, without restriction, without um, a, a fail, without question of every tree in the garden except one. Except one. You shall not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You are free to eat with confidence and, with, 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 and firmly and securely of every tree but one. Our first parents have freedom in the garden, saints, with just one limitation, freedom with just one restriction. And it's a restriction the enemy knows fully about, but he never addresses it directly. Did you notice that? He never uses the phrase, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He simply pretends to be clueless and naive about what God actually said to them. Did God actually say, y'all should not eat of any tree in the garden? This is deception pretending to be curious. He's trying, he's pretending to be curious, but it's actually deception. Eve's vague description, uh, description of the one restriction doesn't help. She's not clear. And it also be, should be, needs to be pointed out that Adam's silence and all this doesn't help either. Because he's standing right there. And his passivity is the issue. So Eve tells the enemy, God says, Y'all should not eat of any. God said, We shall eat of the tree, any tree in the garden except for the one that's in the middle. Neither shall you touch it, or at least you die. And according to Eve, God's restriction restricts them from eating and touching the tree in the middle of the garden. At least there's a possibility that you die. Again, is that what he tells Adam? God is crystal clear of what he tells Adam about the warm restriction and its consequence. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For if you do, you will surely die. When you eat of it, when you eat of the forbidden fruit, you shall surely die. It's not a maybe. It's not a you might die. It's not a possibility that you would die. It's a certainty. Without a shadow of a doubt, you would die to death if you eat of the forbidden fruit. Another theologian says, the response from Eve shows she was beginning to waver. And the enemy sees it. The seed is planted, saints. The fall of the Imaga day is at hand. The, the image of God in them is slowly beginning to shatter and, and break. Can y'all hear it? Can y'all see it? How many fruit trees did God plant in the middle of the garden? How many? He plants two trees in the middle of the garden. Listen to these words in Genesis 2, 8 and 9. And the Lord God plants a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life is in the middle of a garden, in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees are in the middle of the garden, saints. Both trees are pleasant to the eyes and good for, for food. The tree of life is there, and the tree of death is there, which is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Do y'all understand what's before our first parents? 
God doesn't forbid them from eating from the tree of life. He doesn't forbid them from eating from the tree of life. They're free to eat from that tree without fear, without restriction, without a doubt. He only prohibits them from eating from the tree of death, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Life and death is in the middle of the garden. Life and death are before them. Which will they choose? Will they choose life or will they choose death? God wants them to choose life. The enemy wants them to choose death. He wants them to fall. He wants the imago day to shatter. He wants to bring ruin and chaos into God's good creation. And that is what the enemy wants for you as well. He wants you to choose death, but your father wants you to choose life. And that life is only found in God's son, period. The Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who dies on the cross as payment for your sins. You have to have saving faith in him to have that life. And if you don't know him, and if you don't know Christ in faith, this is what Paul says about you in in 2 Corinthians 4. The the apostle says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. And in the case of the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. That is the enemy, the ancient serpent. But Jesus is able to remove the veil. He can free you from your spiritual blindness and brokenness. Do you want to be free? Do you want the veil removed? Then you have to surrender your life to Jesus at this moment. Not later on, right now. Confess your sins to him, accept him as Lord and Savior, and you will be completely forgiven. You will be at peace with God. Reconcile to him forever through the finished work of Christ. And if you are a believer already, if you already know Christ, then don't be naive of the enemy's schemes against you. He comes to you just like he comes to our first, first mother, mother, not in red with a pitchfork and, and, and horns. He'll come to you pretending to be a clueless ally, but actually He's a clever, deceptive enemy who will use God's word. Even God, you even use God's word against you to lead you astray. He wants you to question God's provision and trustworthiness in your life. He wants you to doubt God's word and his promises. Because notice, he comes to Eve with, with that doubt. Don't believe God. And that's where he'll come for you. Can you recognize the voice of the enemy when he whispers to you things that are not true? When he whispers to your heart, when he whispers to your mind? If not, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. Just ask him for help. Ask him for help. Don't rely on your own strength as you engage the enemy. Don't be wise in your own eyes. You can't outwit him in your own power. You have the spirit living in you for a reason. Ask him for help. Our first parents realized that they couldn't outwit this enemy. You see, right out the Eve's response, uh, Satan counters attacks with a blatant, direct denial 
of God's command to them. A blatant, direct denial of God's word. Look at verses 4 and 5. For the serpent says to Eve, you, y'all will surely not die. For God knows when y'all eat from it, your eyes will be open and y'all will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you see what the enemy has done? God tells them, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But the enemy says, y'all surely won't die. He's calling your God a liar. A deceiver who can't be trusted. God is deceiving you and your husband. He's holding back on y'all. He's keeping promises from y'all. The restriction he's giving you isn't really for your good and benefit. The restriction is bad. God doesn't really want y'all to flourish. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So don't trust God's word. Trust my words. Trust me. Trusting in me means that means the odds will forever be in your favor. Take matters into your own hands. Eat of the fruit and be like God. Whose voice would our first parents believe? Whose word would they trust? The same question is always before us each day as Christians. When you get up each morning, are you going to believe God's word? Or are you going to believe Satan's word? Or are you going to believe your own word? God's word or your political party's word? God's word or social media? God's word or society? God's word or the news? Eve and Adam are already the crown of God's creation. They already. They already have all of his favor, saints. All of his attention, they already have it right there. They're the, they're the representational image of God on earth, the Imago day, but yet the enemy is deceiving them into believing that's not enough. It's not enough that you're already created in God's image. It's not enough that you already live in the garden and free to eat from any tree uh, that, that you want to but one. There's more that you can have. There's another crown available to you, a crown that that God doesn't want you to have. For God knows when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's a false promise and a half truth. Yes, their eyes will be open, but they will die. And having knowledge of good and evil isn't intellectual knowledge only. They're going to experience those things. You're going, to, you're going to experience evil and good. Your eyes been open means you're going to now be wise in your own eyes, meaning you ain't going to see your need for a Savior. You don't really need your Creator. You don't need your Creator now. You're wise in your own eyes. That's what that means. Another scholar says the serpent represents exactly what the author sees in man's disobedience to his Creator, his desire and attempt to become his own God. That's exactly what has happened here. The Imago Dei is shattering. The image of God is falling. And Adam and Eve's relationship with God is going to be completely broken. And it starts with a look, a delight, and a desire. 
Look at verse 6b. So when, so when Eve saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Eve looks at the tree. She delights in the tree. She desires the tree. Notice that all her initial reactions are all internal before they become external. It starts right here in the heart. So, but is the look wrong? Is her delight wrong? Is her desire wrong? Is, is one thing wrong or is all three are wrong? Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. I'll give y'all a moment to get there. Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. Take a moment to get there. First, first book of the Bible, second chapter of the Bible. Listen to these words from your father. Out of the ground, the Lord God calls to grow every tree that is pleasing to the eye and good for food. The tree of life was also in the middle of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is good for food. It is pleasing to the eye. It is a delight to look at. Why? Because God created it. Here's the thing, saints. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is part of God's good creation. The issue is not with the tree. That's not the issue. The issue is, will our first parents trust God more than they would trust the enemy? Will they trust God's word more than they would trust the words of the enemy? That's what the issue is. Will they trust that even this one one prohibition that God has given them is also for their good? Will they believe that? Or will they listen to the voice and lies of the enemy? I don't believe Eve's look and delights are wrong here. Admiring what God's created isn't sinful and rebellious. When you go out and admire God's creation, that is a good thing because your, your God did that. He did that. What gets her into trouble is that her looking turns into covetousness. The false assumption that she is going to use the forbidden fruit to make herself more wise. The Hebrew term that's translated to be desired can also mean to lust after, to covet. This, saints, is the first occurrence of idolatry in Scripture right here. The hanging fruit. Desiring it is idolatry because she's going to use what God created to try to get from it what only God can give her. So our first parents being left to the freedom of their own will decides to eat from the forbidden fruit. And as a result, they experience goodness. They experience evil. They felt the consequence of their rebellion. Look at verses six and seven. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then their eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Do y'all remember? Do you remember how chapter 2 ends? What does chapter two, how does chapter two ends? What does it say about our first parents? Yes, they were naked and not ashamed. What was the first thing they experienced after their eyes were open? Shame. 
and nakedness. They didn't get no secret wisdom. They did not become gods. They just became fully aware of their own brokenness. And they felt the brokenness. They felt the guilt. They felt the shame. One commentator says, our first parents lost the blessed blindness, the ignorance of innocence, which knows nothing of nakedness. And so now they are in this shame, state of shame and guilt. The image is shattered. They have fallen from grace. But for us, we know that our first parents' rebellion isn't the end of the story, right? We know it's not the end of the story. Yes, they messed up, but God's provision is greater than they mess up. It is. So we get the benefit. We live, we live east of Eden, but we still have the benefit of God's, all of God's redemptive revelation that they don't have at that point. So for them, they could have felt hopeless, but because we look at the whole counsel of God, we know how the story ends. Romans 5, in the Message Bible, Romans 5, Romans 5, verse 12 through 16 says, you know the story of how Adam landed us in the dilemma we're in. I love the Message Bible. So nice word pictures. First sin, then death. And no one exempt from neither sin nor death. That sin disturbed relations with God and everything and everyone. But the extent of the disturbance were not, was not clear until God spelled it out in detail to Moses. So death, this huge abyss separating us from God, dominated the landscape from Adam to Moses. Even those who did not sin precisely as Adam did by disobeying a specific command of God still had experienced this termination of life, the separation from God. But Adam, who got us into this, also points ahead to the one who would get us out of it. Adam, the first Adam, points us to the second Adam. Please know that. See, a lot of people, one of, one of the issues a lot of people have with Christianity is that how could one man's disobedience make me a sinner? I say because the same one who, the same guy who did that also provided one man's obedience who makes you righteous. The same thing. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, what Jesus did is afraid of, but you get, you benefit from that. One man's obedience got us into it. One man's obedience, obedience gets us out of it. The message Bible continues. Yet the rescuing gift is not exactly parallel to the death dealing sin. If one man's sin put crowds of people at death ends abyss to separate us from God, just think about what God's gift poured through one man, Jesus Christ will do. There's no comparison between the death-dealing sin and this generous, life-giving gift. The verdict on the one without was the sentence of death. The verdict on the many sins that followed was this wonderful life sentence. If death got the upper hand through one man's wrongdoing, can you imagine the breathtaking recovery life makes? Sovereign life. And those who grasp both hands this extravagant, life-giving gift, this grand setting everything right that one man, Jesus Christ, provides. Here it is in a nutshell, saints. 
Just as one man did wrong and got us all into trouble with sin and death, another man did right and got us all out of it. But more than just getting us out of it, he got us into life. He got us into life. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. One man said yes to God and put many in the right. Again, our first parents' disobedience is not the end of the story. Because Christ does come. And we're going to get more into that when we get to the last part of the sermon series, the restoration of the Imago Day. But for right now, just know that if you are a believer, you are in the right. You will forever be in the right. You will forever be, when God sees you, you will be seen as child, son, and daughter. Even when you mess up, that doesn't change the fact that that's your identity now. That is who you are. Definitely for you young Christians. If you can understand that right now, you're going to have so much joy as an adult. Because you will know even at a young age of what it means to rest in what Christ has done for you. And that's enough. When he said it's finished, it's finished. It's finished. And all we get to do is to rest and live in that union that he has given us. Again, do you want rest? Do you want peace? Do you want true joy? Do you want to be able to relax? Where, where is your true happy place? You know, my, my, one of my happy places is going to the beach. Because I can sit on the beach, watch the sunset, and relax. When you really grasp what it means to be in union with Christ, that means you're always in your happy place all the days of your life. Think about what that means. You're always in your happy place all the days of your life when you truly grasp what it means when Jesus said, it is finished. So, saints, relax. Enjoy life. Enjoy what God has given you. Enjoy creation without worshiping it. Relax. It is enough. Let us pray. Father, you see us. You know us. You have us forever. And we are grateful that as your people, that our first parents, what they did was not the last story. The Bible didn't just end there. It continues. You brought redemption. You brought reconciliation. You made a way to make what were, to make right what was done wrong in Genesis 3 through, the, through your son. And because of him, many people have been made right with you. And because of him, we get to stand in your presence without fear of judgment, without fear of wrath. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.